0: Good morning. If you'll uh, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 5, if you have a Bible. You can use one of the ones in the seats if you don't. Matthew 5. And while you turn there, um, I'd like to ask you to think of a time when you, in your life, where you felt like you really stood out or that you were different. It can be, we'll start easy, just any time that you sort of st- stuck out. In middle school, I went to school with girls' shoes on once. <laughs> stuck out. Don't do that. <laughs> it's time you, people, you were different. Now I want to add something to that. Think of a time in your life where you were different um, because of a decision you had to make. Like you had to decide, um, I can't do that anymore. Like an occasion where your difference is actually attached to to something like a conviction. Like I used to often go into that building and I would have that drink but I can't go into that building anymore. I can't have that drink anymore. Uh, Or you know, where you are among people and you're having to make a decision that's going to set you apart from them and you're going to feel that distance. It's a calculated cost. Can you think of a time in your life where you've had to do that? Maybe you were at a bus stop as a kid waiting for the bus and you know, there's the It was almost always the runt of the litter at a bus stop. That was my experience growing up. And a time when you finally said, you know, that kid cannot be alone anymore. It's going to cost you, right? It's going to cost you your lunch table. Or a time maybe at work uh, where you thought there is a more ethical way we should be talking. So I have to say this. Or, I don't want to keep saying them. I want you to think of your own. But then I don't want the awkward silence. So What do I do about this? <laughs> this morning, that's what we're going to be dealing with is the way that God calls his people to be different. Or we'll, we'll keep it with the teachings of Jesus. The way that Jesus... Teaches, here this morning in the text, in such a way that lets us know that if we follow him, we will be different, and it's the kind of difference that comes at a cost. Uh, We are in Matthew 5, and I do want to just bring us up to speed, since we just started last week. If you weren't here last week, we... um, we took note of how uh, the nature around which Jesus taught. This was his his method. His method was he would travel around, and what would happen is his reputation preceded him. People would bring the sick to him. He would heal the sick and the infirmed, and that would create a crowd and a buzz. And so soon, uh, many people were drawn towards him. And when the crowds came... He would sit down and start teaching. So, uh, and when that would happen, there was something that would happen to the crowd. A subset of the crowd would remain. So, you know, you can imagine the crowd might dissipate, but some who were as interested to see what he hear what he might have to say as they were to see what he might have to do stayed and followed. If he can do that, I want to know what he has to say. Or I heard him speak before and there's a truth in what he has to say and I need to hear more of it. And those people are called in the Bible disciples, followers of Jesus. And so the end of the fourth chapter sets us up for the beginning of the fifth chapter where Jesus sits down and begins to teach his disciples. And he opens his mouth and he starts by giving them this, this list, the beginning of the fifth chapter, They start with the word blessed, and this was our focus last week, was on these blessings, these blessed statements, and we said, hey, blessed here doesn't mean like you're lucky or good for you, good for you that you're mourning. That's great. That's not what it means, or hey, it's great for you if, if, uh, if you suffer and are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's just wonderful news. That's not the meaning. The meaning is a little bit uh, kind of more roundabout, like, despite the fact that you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake, you need to know that God sees you, and He marks it. That you're not farther from God because of it, and you haven't failed because of it. That the hardship because of your righteousness is not coming necessarily because you're not being righteous enough, or you're doing it the wrong way. Expect it, and you should know God sees it and he's drawn to you, this is an admirable way to be. And there's this list, right? The poor in spirit, those who know their need of God. There's those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are they. I was thinking this week, if you have no belief in the life that follows, if you have no belief in eternity, or even if you're just really skeptical about it, if you're agnostic on the subject of whatever happens after you die, if if that's who you are and that's your position, then there really is no basis for this list. And I say that because this list is an admirable list. I think all sorts of people would look at this and say, Ah, that those are things worth admiring. But I just want to say that if you think that this material life, if if you think it or are living as though this material life is all there really is, there really is no basis to behave the way this list is described. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are those who know their need of God. Well, well if you don't believe there's a need, of, if they don't believe there's a God, you don't have a need of Him. you and you're not about to create some cavernous hole in your life waiting for a God that you don't believe is going to show up. You're going to live a life of strength, as best you can. You're going to pick yourselves up by your bootstraps. If there's no God, well, then your mourning is real. And there is no hope in your mourning. I mean, if this is all we have, then your loss is real and absolute. It's as bad as it feels. And there is no comfort. If this is all we are, there really is no basis to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That seems like, why suppress all the natural carnal hungers that I have all the time? I mean, like, why suppress those for something that's so much work if this is all there is? Meek. Why in the world be meek? I mean, I would think... If this is all there is, then my advice would be use the power that you have available to you to get what you can now. Secure for yourself the most amenable environment you possibly can. That's not a practical statement. That's a highly theological statement. That's the best theology I can offer if there's no theo in your ology There's no enduring value for mercy. Why? There's no gain for purity. Why? There's no just reward for sacrificial peacemaking. Why would you do it? There's certainly no reason to suffer for righteousness' sake. Why would you do that? It's just worth noting right off the bat that this list, which resonates so deeply, I believe, in the hearts of mankind as... as uh, I, I, to share with you. I, I, when I was in Israel two years ago, or pretty much today, two years ago today, um, I had a bus driver who was uh, m- modest Jew. He was ethnic Jew and largely secular. And we came to the mountain where apparently the Sermon on the Mount took place, which is probably not true. Okay, uh, Most of those sites are kind of sites of antiquity. But, Nonetheless, we were going to get out and have a time of meditation and prayer at the Mount of the Beatitudes, and we pull up, and our guide, he says to me, I have to be honest with you. He says to the, the bus, I have to be honest with you. I, I don't really observe Christianity, and I'm not very religious, but the Sermon on the Mount, he goes, I have to admit that I have never read anything like it. Right? There's a natural, the natural person sees this list and goes, this, wouldn't it be nice if we all lived like this? And I'm saying, if there is nothing after this, there's no basis to live this way. This is my my anecdotal observation, but I think you'd make the same. I think we live in a culture and a time where these Uh, virtues or qualities that we see here on the page that they seem to surface more scarcely than I once imagined. Uh, They seem to have less prevalence. Uh, um, They stick out all the more when they arise. When I see meekness and mercy and purity in our culture, they really stick out because they seem to show up less often and in less concentration. And I'd say that's happening alongside of a culture that's increasingly Godless. By its own admission, secular. There's a reason for that. Okay. Well, last week we ended on the 10th verse. And this morning we're going to pick up at the 11th verse, which is going to sound similar to the 10th. The 10th says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for those Is the kingdom of heaven. It's going to sound similar, but there's also a few important differences. Let me read 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I think you can probably hear the similarity there. But there are a couple differences. Uh, The first difference is the fact that the whole list is about this indiscriminate they. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. It's some they, some third-person plural crowd that's not really described. But verse 11 is not they. It's you. It's second-person plural. Blessed are you. So working down the list, as Jesus is teaching, he's talking about sort of indiscriminate theys, these imaginary, at least undefined groups of people and categories of people that are throughout, almost as though we can be kind of comfortably invited into living like them, towards them. Uh, But they're these non-defined groups, but he ends with you. And another thing he does is, Uh, All down the list, you know, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. What comes to the mourners is non personal. There's really not a person that has anything to do with it. When you get down to verse 11, blessed are those who are blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil things about you. What? Falsely because of me. It's because, because of me. I just want us to observe what the teacher's done here. He started teaching, talking about a non discriminant group of people, and he's ended talking about you, those of you who are following, right? He's, the you there are the people following him. He's talking about you and him. We have arrived fairly quickly in this sermon to whoever this man is, <laughs> He is encouraging me, in light of the notion that I may one day be persecuted and hated because of him. And that's worth talking about. Why would he? Why would you be persecuted for exhibiting, living into the things on this list? Well, why in the world would you be persecuted for that? I mean, forget for a second all that you know about Jesus, the whole story, because let's just tell ourselves, in the fifth chapter of Matthew, those following Jesus don't know the whole story. We can't assume that they know everything about Jesus and all those things. Even the disciples at this moment in the Gospels don't really know who they're following. They're on the way to knowing who they're following. So essentially what Jesus is saying is Jesus has started teaching, saying God approves distinctly Of those who have this kind of heart for him, this merciful heart towards others, this peacemaking heart, right? Those sorts of people are the sorts of people that God is inclined towards and that the kingdom of God is given to. And he says, and watch out, because one day you're gonna you think this too much and you're gonna find yourself persecuted. How does that happen? How does it happen? that you and I would begin to manifest the things on this list that we think most people would say are good things, and we find ourselves persecuted. It doesn't sound like mildly persecuted. It sounds pretty explicit. Reviled. I, I revile Brussels sprouts. It's real. Okay? He's saying, when you are like the Brussels sprout to mankind, I mean, it's... It's not a small word, okay? It's like a visceral word. Aren't these good things? The best way I revive the word kingdom in our thinking, I think what Jesus is doing is he's talking, he's saying there are two kingdoms as Jesus speaks two kingdoms are colliding that's what he's saying he's saying i am ushering in a kingdom that is colliding with the one you're living in and they are not the same so he's the bible talks about the kingdom of god the new testament really talks about the kingdom of god the gospels certainly talk about the kingdom of God. And of all the gospels, Matthew describes the kingdom of God. Look at the fourth chapter, right at the very end. This is where we started last week, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom. The third verse in chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When the wise men come to Jerusalem looking for the Christ child, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When the people get dissatisfied with Jesus and they begin to plot his death, their primary argument is he's making the claim that he's a king. They drag him before the Roman authorities and they say, you need to take care of this man because he's making the claims, he's a king. He's rivaling as an insurrectionist the seat of Caesar. To which Pontius Pilate says, is this, is this true? Are you a king? And Jesus says, Well, you say I'm a king? Pilate with fear says, stop messing with me. Are you a king? He says, I am a king, but not of this world. And when Pilate finally determines that he's going to be crucified, he brings him before the people and says, Behold your king, to which the mob responds, We have no king but Caesar. This this notion of kingdom is just going to travel throughout this story. A couple Sundays, Palm Sunday, right? They receive Jesus in Jerusalem as they would a king. And what we're seeing here is Jesus is suggesting with this list, this blessed list, this list describes the nature of the citizenry of the kingdom of heaven. And it is at odds with the world. That's why there's something in you that knows it's true. And at the same time, there's something in us that doesn't like to do it. In a little bit, we're gonna be taught how to pray. And Jesus is gonna say this, you should say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If you serve... This kingdom, I'm talking about the one that's here that you and I see, if we choose to describe our world as though things seen and touched are the most real that are, then the kingdom of heaven is going to start, we're going to start to cause friction with the kingdom of God, right? It's going to be difficult to be loyal to the cause. We're not going to find ourselves very well suited for the categories of the Lord, or we're not going to be excited about the things that he's excited about. That's just if if we adopt this demeanor, that kingdom is going to rub against us. It's going to judge us. It's going to push on us. Likewise, if we said it a little differently, if we choose to serve the kingdom of the to come, the kingdom of the Lord, well, we will begin to appear disloyal to this world. Less fun just thinking of the ways in my life, my disloyalty began to manifest. Less fun, less funny. Uh, Boring. Too good. Judgmental. Goody two-shoes. It's a drag in the way to nice Now this list, by the way, in 11, it says, listen, they're going to say all sorts of things about you <laughs> falsely on my account. So you're going to be called all sorts of things. You're going to be called judgmental. The goal is not to be judgmental, but do not think that you will not be called judgmental. The, you're going to get called it because the kingdom of God pushes against this world. Verse 12 says, rejoice and be glad about it. (laughs) Like, hey, isn't that great? He's not saying that. He's saying, think of the gain one day. Think of what you're being brought into. You can rejoice and be glad in this affliction and in this persecution because it's a sign and a signet that you are on the path. You are following the Lord and you know that it will end well for you because there is a life to come. So there's this way of encouraging, rejoice and be glad because it 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 should let you resonate that you're in harmony with Jesus, and your great is your reward. In trying to think how to describe this moment, this like rejoice and be glad moment, the, I'll just share with you the sort of the best image I have of uh, this life and the life to come. Um, if you've ever Uh, been around when a baby's born. If you've been unfortunate enough to be in the room. (sighs) I know it's good. I just don't like all this yuckiness. Well, this is what I want to say because I'm not saying what I want to say right now. What I want to say is I'm pretty sure it hurts the baby. Like I'm pretty sure The babies can't talk, but I'm pretty sure it's not fun for them to be born because their heads get all squished. You ever seen a baby's head? Like, that's gotta hurt. I mean, the mom's yelling. Probably rough on the kid, too. I'm just saying what I know, okay? Seen it four times, none of them were happy, okay? And if they just kind of like sail out, well, then somebody picks them up and hits them. <laughs> I mean, the goal is to make the infant cry. That is like job well done. And I'm, but I just think, imagine having your lungs full of fluid for your whole life. And then all of a sudden they empty it and say, figure it out. That's got to be hard. Okay? Sometimes their bones are broken coming out. I am sure being born is not fun. I'm about 100% sure that if you could survey the child, they'd say, eh, I'll stay in. But the funny thing is, is when they come out in the midst of all the pain, right, it's when the baby starts crying, slap, wah, everybody rejoices, this is great. So everyone around, everyone who knows what's just happened knows this is a great and splendid and glorious moment. This is the best moment. This is the greatest moment. But the infant, now the, the infant is in shock. Now, no one has ever come to me in counseling to say they have to complain about their journey through the birth canal or they need an apology. You can't remember. You can't remember that experience. And this is why we just assume there's no pain is because we can't remember it, right? We have no connection to that pain because the truth of the matter is is our senses weren't really developed. We barely had senses to connect to. I, I guess that's the reason. There's something about that experience that was such the most primitive version of ourselves, the most undeveloped version of ourselves that we, we, we really can't reach back to that moment and hold on to that very discreet, very real pain. We can't do it. Because what's happened is we have been brought into our life. We've been raised up into this life. And the senses and powers and all the things of this life, like we are so real in this life that the traumatic pain of that moment is so insignificant that you cannot even recall it. You have no connection to the pain of your beginning. Not, none whatsoever whatsoever because you've been brought into a place where your senses are alive now and breathing. And back then it was just the most primitive version of yourselves. This is what I think it is. This is what God would call us to. He would say your persecution now in comparison is light and momentary. That's what God says, light and momentary. This is coming from the pen of someone who will be martyred for Jesus Christ. He's saying, I don't consider these light and momentary afflictions something to be accounted for. In fact, he describes us as though we are in labor pains being born. He's describing our lives as the pain that we can't even remember in light of where we're coming to. I'm I'm suggesting in verse 12 that the kind of world that's coming to us to rejoice and be glad Because great is your reward. If you're born into the kingdom of God, you're going to a place where all the afflictions of this birth canal are so insignificant that you will not have connection to them. Your senses are gonna be so brought into the kingdom. Live for that moment. Live for that moment. Recognize the moment now is forgettable. That's what he's suggesting. Blessed are you. Blessed are you who live for the right moment. Blessed are you who live for the right reality. Blessed are you who live for eternity and not not this thing, but eternity, who live for your life and not this day. He's going to connect it in verse 13. It's going to be this, this uh, very artful pivot. He's still with you. You. I'm talking about you, the followers of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, it's interesting what's happening here because the way the his sermon starts, he describes the nature of God's people, right? Blessed are these kinds of people. And we get these sorts of lists throughout the Bible. Fruits of the Spirit. These just things that you go, yes, a person of God lives that way. But then he redirects us in verse 13 to say, listen, it's more than just piety. It's more than just you being holy. God's not raising you to be a monk on a mountain or to be quiet in your piety. You are the salt of the Earth, it's for a reason. When I think of salt, I typically think it's the thing on the table that I shake into my food and it makes things taste better, which they did use salt for that purpose back then, but I think uh, more likely, more likely the, pers- the, the leading perspective, the leading thought that those hearing would have had with salt would have been salt is a pres- as a preservative. That's how it was daily used in antiquity, is you have meat, you need to salt it or it'll rot. You have fish, you need to salt it or it'll rot. That's what they would do. That's their daily use of salt was as a preservative. In other words, Jesus is saying to his followers, you should see the world as though it is in decay. You should see the earth as though it is rotting away. And you are its preservative. You're its hope. Your life saves it. That's what he's saying. A lot of the salt would come out of the Dead Sea in Israel, unsurprisingly. It would come out of the Dead Sea, and a lot of times it was just... It was not pure like your, I don't know, iodinized salt, whatever you used, sodium chloride. That, it's not that pure back then. It would be, it'd have a lot of uh, other impurities in it. So you could have occasions where you were using salt, you were using what you thought was salt because it looked like salt, but it was just mixed in with so many impurities it wasn't being effective. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're the salt of the earth. If you're not salty, what good are you? What good are you? And it puts, it begins to push, create this tension for us because we know that if we live a life like Jesus' teaching, that eventually, right, if we live a life of that kingdom and not this kingdom, well, these two kingdoms are at odds. So eventually we will find ourselves at odds, with those around us, right? We will be having to make difficult decisions about what we're gonna say and what we're gonna do and things that are gonna start costing us in this world because we're no longer of this world. We're in the labor pains. We're passing through the canal into the other world. And so we're beginning to feel these light and momentary afflictions of what it's costing to empty out our lungs and finally breathe in the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's what's happening in this life right now. And what he's saying is, is in that tension... You need to know when you're thinking, maybe I'll just back it off a little bit. Maybe rather than standing out, I'll just fold or hide. He's saying, if you're not salty, you're not useful. I'm raising you for conflict. Not to be a jerk, not to be judgmental, not to bash anyone over the head. If you simply seek the kingdom of God, you are in conflict. You cannot prevent it. And if you avoid conflict, you are not useful. Quiet, personal piety is a myth. It's sanctimonious, tasteless faith. Same with light. You're the light of the world. The image there is the world is wandering in darkness. They, this kingdom is dark and that kingdom is light. He has brought us into the kingdom of light. And he's saying you in your distinctness represent light. Now, there will invariably, invariably be people who will say turn the light out. They will. But some will come. Some will come. That's the image there. You're sitting on a hill. Like, you're going to be, someone's going to crest the hill and be like, thank God. I'm out. I've been walking all night. You ever, you ever been traveling and you see a campfire? You've been hiking? And the sun's gone down. And you're getting a little nervous. Am I lost? And then you see that campfire? You know, there's such a warmth, right? There are others in this world that are wandering and God is saying, but when they see the light, they'll come. And you're it. Who in their right mind would testify that they're the light and yet put a basket over themselves? I have in my mind and I'll close with this thought. I have in my mind a thought that some of you, you, you work and you trade in businesses that deal with power. The truth is, all of us do. There's, our home can become an industry of power. The classroom can be an industry of power. When we're among people, where power is there. But some of you, more than others, right? you know, it's important that you're a mover and a shaker, or you're big, or you're tough, or you do this, or you do that. And I understand that. Right? I understand it's important for a police officer to be strong. At times, and it's important for a teacher to put their foot down. And I was trained to pull a red trigger and make people go away. I understand that power is it. And you may be thinking, "So wait a second, I, I I can't meekness. That's got to be off the list. And this is off the list. I will, and I'm going to not going to get specific with you. I'm going to leave you to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I am saying though, your job is not at odds. I mean, good labor is not at odds with the kingdom of God. There may be things that will cost you. That's the point. I am not trying to bail you out of that. Jesus is recognizing a tension that exists for those who would follow. There's a way that's good, but it runs counter to the kingdom of this world. And you have to make a choice. This teaching puts a choice in front of us. It's a choice. Are you part of the kingdom of God or are you part of the kingdom of man? One kingdom offers this. It offers meaning and purpose now and a richness in the life to come. That's great. The other says, stay as you are. Get what you can and act like there is no tomorrow. And that's your choice. Because the kingdoms are very different. Let's go ahead and pray. And um, we'll respond Lord, we come to you. We ask in your mercy to help us understand how to be your people in this world, Lord we confess to you, it feels as though the kingdoms have collided. And so as we are in the midst of this this collision, I pray for wisdom and mercy and peace and discernment and willingness and obedient hearts. I pray, Lord, for patience and courage, Lord, for us. Lord, we, we proclaim that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound judgment. So we ask, Lord, for these things so that we can be distinctly useful to you as we save the world from decay in your name or as we guide people to your kingdom in your name. So we pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen.